Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. If I've done my math right, this will be episode 209 and will come out on August 18th, which means that on the following Monday, North America is going to experience a once-in-a-lifetime solar eclipse. I'm pretty confident that we've got some magical practitioners in our listening audience. I don't know much about magic, but it seems like there is going to be some magic going on when an incredibly rare celestial event is happening. I'm wanting to ask that you dot your I's and cross your T's, because I don't need something like the mist happening around here. North America has enough problems going on without interdimensional rifts torn into the fabric of reality, allowing carnivorous monsters to spill in and devour us as we cower in terror. There's precedent for this. In Homer's The Odyssey, you'll find the passage, And the sun perished out of heaven, and an evil mist hovers over all. That was 1178 BCE's eclipse. Look, I usually don't ask for much. A few bucks in the Patreon page. And now this. Be careful and consider this a public service announcement. Personally, I intend on watching one of my favorite Kathy Bates movies, Dolores Claiborne, on Monday after the solar eclipse completes. I hope everyone on this quarter of the planet is able to check it out. To tide you over, we've got a couple of stories for you this evening. Let's hear that fiction. Jeff Dosser is an ex-Tulsa cop, a native-born Okie, who spends his time cycling through the Oklahoma hills and pondering the horrors prowling the darkness of his wooded rural home. Jeff's short stories have appeared in several magazines, including Shotgun Honey, Bewildering Stories, Down in the Dirt, and Yellow Mama. He's the recent recipient of Writing.com's Quill Award for Best Short Fiction. Settle in and enjoy Jeff Dosser's After Visiting Hours.
When your eyes reveal a truth, is it madness if no one else can see? At what point does a man acknowledge his senses have taken leave of reality and are communicating things which cannot be? These questions have plagued me since I first encountered the thing that torments me. The abomination perched at the end of my hospital bed each night. It has been five days since my nightmare began. Yet it seems only last night I was awoken by the piteous cries and woeful mourns from behind the curtain on the far side of the room. My financial means did not allow for a private room. Instead, I share my recovery space with another, Mr. Eugene Gray, an older gentleman of declining health and noisome kin. During that first encounter with the horror, I held no fear for myself. Only a mild aggravation had been woken at 3 a.m. by Mr. Gray's outbursts. I attempted to wake him by calling his name, but received no reply. Instead, my attempt was met with a chittenous clamour and the shadowy vision of some... some thing clambering up the curtain and disappearing beneath the ceiling tiles. The sight was shocking beyond compare, and I immediately rang for the nurse. Of course, my explanation of an intruder was met with looks of disbelief. In retrospect, I don't know how I expected any other reaction. Yet when the nurse threw back the curtain to check on Mr. Gray, she discovered he was quite dead. A flurry of rushing nurses and doctors soon followed, ending with Mr. Gray being ushered out of the room, never to return, leaving me in an alarmed state of disquiet. In my bedridden condition... I considered the possibility of the vision being a dream, a roguish apparition heralded by my neighbour's rather vocal demise. My roaming eyes, however, soon caught sight of the panel above Mr. Gray's bed. It lay askew to the others, a minor imperfection in an otherwise pristine checkerboard of white. Then suddenly the board slid into place, sending a fine shower of dust drifting to the floor. The next morning had me writing the experience off to painkillers and bad dreams. Then the hospital's newest patient, Joseph Miller, arrived. He shared the same unfortunate spinal injury and associated waist-down paralysis as I. Unlike me, Miller had many callers, his wife and three daughters, along with a hodgepodge of well-wishing friends. Then night came, and once again I was awakened by the mournful outcries of my bedfellow. My eyes leapt immediately to the tiles in the ceiling. A black opening gaped there. A slender thread, alabaster in the open window's glow, dangled to my guest's bed. The curtains between us lay open, and I noted the dark mass perched atop my roommate's torso. The thing's segmented legs extended like a beetle's from its bulbous black body. The triangular head pressed against Miller's rising chest. I had no doubt the revolting creature was feeding. Its body 
pulsing in heartbeat rhythm. My throat, dry with fear, I coughed out an alarm, poked repeatedly at the nurse's call button. Then the thing turned, its legs articulating like slow-moving fingers of a severed hand, and mounted the bed rail before ascending the string. As the nurse burst in and flicked on the lights, the filth peered from beneath the tile, its eyes gleaming in sudden illumination, reflecting the light in a prismatic spray of colour. It's there! I screamed, jabbing a finger at the gaping ceiling. The creature was as clearly visible as the nose on my face. Yet the nurse did nothing. She paused for only a moment to follow the direction of my extended arm. Then she was beside Miller, calling Code Blue over the hospital PA. For the second time in as many days, a roommate of mine had died. I've seen now the nature of their killer, but no nurse, no doctor will heed my claims. I can see the pity in their eyes when I tell my tale, but they do no more than pat me on the arm and tell me, it will be okay. Perhaps it's a fear of my declining mental health. Maybe they consider me an agent of ill fortune. For whatever reason, the last two nights have found me alone in this room. Of course, I could not sleep. During the night, I hear the things scrambling in the ceiling, saw the panel crack open and the silken thread drop from the hole. The creature lurks at the end of my bed now, waiting for sleep to overtake me. Even as I write, it waits, knowing full well there is nothing I can do to stop it. No one who will believe my ravings, if ravings they are. The only test is to sleep. If I awake in the morning, then I am most certainly mad. If I do not wake, then the world is mad. And God save us all. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. That was Jeff Dosser's After Visiting Hours, as read by Ron John. Ron John has written and published children's books, scripts, and screenplays for animation and live action, musical lyrics, and libretti. He is a student of strange phenomena and parapsychology, horror, and children's literature. You can see Ron John's videos and hear more of his work on the Spectre Collector blog. That's at thespectrecollector.blogspot.com.au. You can download his albums on the Spectre Collector Bandcamp site, spectrecollector.bandcamp.com, and check out Ron John's Hymns to the Cannibal Blood Cult, the Fungus Sanguinarius, at the Fruits of Madness blog which is at thefruitsofmadness.blogspot.com.au, and links to all of that will be in the show notes. Thank you, Ron. Our second story of the night comes to us from Evan Dicken. By day, Evan Dicken studies old Japanese maps and crunches data for all manner of fascinating medical experiments at THE Ohio State University. By night, he does neither of these things. His horror fiction has appeared in publications such as Shock Totem, Pseudopod, and Dark Fuse magazine, and he has stories forthcoming from publishers such as Chaosium and Apex magazine. Feel free to visit him at www.evandicken.com, where he wastes both his time and yours. Evan, I'll have to remember to let you know the next time I'm in town. There are a couple restaurants on Neal Avenue that I wouldn't mind giving a go with some company. Children of the Night, listen with me to Evan Dickens of The Fittest. There was no one waiting to welcome us home when we stepped from the portal. I wasn't surprised. The unspeakable one wasn't big on calling ahead. New Brighton looked about the same. More of the McNaughton Avenue businesses were boarded up, 
but there were a few cars outside Pike's Market, and the front window of Ready Hardware still glittered with strings of Christmas lights. In the distance, smoke from the munitions factory stained the horizon a dusty gray. There were yellow signs scrawled across doors and brick facades, but they didn't grate on me the way they used to. It's surprising what people can learn to accept when they've got no choice. Although none of the yellow guards shifted from parade rest, the relief was palpable. The unspeakable one demands five years from his conscripts, but he doesn't necessarily stipulate where they'll serve. We'd all heard stories of soldiers losing decades, even centuries, to tours in the dreamlands. Fortunately, most of our fighting had been along what used to be the New England coast, and while thinking of what crawled from the night-dark waters of the Atlantic still gave me sweats, at least a day was a day out there. We'd had it better than most, actually. Haster disliked humanity, but he hated the other great old ones, and hate was something we could work with. It had been bad at first, trying to resist the inevitable, but if you can say one thing about humans, it's that we're survivors. Somehow, we'd found a toehold amidst the alien geography of the old one's enmity. They might be immortal, but their servants weren't. Deep ones, doles, star spawn, even shoggoths died once you sunk enough ordnance into them. Once we'd proven humanity was more useful alive than dead, the rest was just details. A rattling grasp from front and center broke me from my ruminations and snapped the company to attention. Our tour was technically over, but hard experience had taught us to obey the lieutenant in all things. Five years ago, he'd been Kurt Brykalski, nervous and soft-spoken, part of the yearbook committee. I hadn't known him well enough to guess why he ran from the Bayaki. It might have been lingering nationalism, or maybe a misplaced conscience, but my best guess was plain old cowardice. In any case, the king made an example of him, which was fine by me. There's no room for cowards in the Yellow Guard. Like most of Haster's servants, the lieutenant affected a ratty, mustard-colored robe frayed along the hems and splattered with dirt and blood. What little flesh was visible looked like it had been skinned and left to dry over the winter, all but the eyes which rolled in their sockets, horrified and pleading. Sergeant Long. The lieutenant spoke in an agonized scream, as if each word were a razor drawn across his flesh. I made the mistake of meeting his gaze. His eyes went wide in wordless entreaty, begging for release even as a smile stretched his cracked and bleeding lips. We release you from service. I don't know what I expected. Fireworks, euphoria, even a sense of relief. But there was none of that. If anything, I felt more on edge. I turned back to the company, seeing my apprehension reflected by the few score of us who'd survived the tour of duty. Well, you... My voice broke like a teenager's. I cleared my throat and continued in a hoarse rasp. You heard the lieutenant. For over a minute no one moved. Finally, Jeffries, a corporal from second squad, took off running. She headed away from town to the woods, 
stripping off her uniform as she went. I caught a flash of her naked back, fish belly white against the forest shadows, and she was gone. Soldiers began drifting off in ones and twos, following Jeffreys into the trees. Soon, uniforms littered the clearing like cast-off snakeskins. The forest pulled at my gaze, leaves hissed in the warm summer breeze, whispers rising like an ocean tide to swamp the furious buzz of my thoughts. It was mid-afternoon, but somehow I could see the stars. The others waited for me beneath the spreading bows, free to run, to etch sacred signs into our flesh as we writhed together in howling ecstasy. We'd given Haster our service when all he really wanted was our love. I took a step towards the woods, fumbling at the buttons of my shirt, but a hand settled on my shoulder, twisted, arthritic fingers clutched at my epaulets, holding me back. Not yet. The lieutenant made wet choking noises. He nodded towards New Brighton, but his eyes screamed at me to run. Realization parted the sea of madness that flooded my thoughts. I had a wife, a baby. What the hell had I almost done? I clasped my hands to stop them from shaking. Alone, I made my way down McNaughton, past hollow buildings and empty storefronts, resplendent echoes of rust-belt finery. A woman stepped out into the street. I smiled. She went back inside. The madness was finally over. I'd come home. Shelley was cooking when I crept into the kitchen, knife in hand. I'd thought about knocking, but pounding on the door to my own house didn't seem right. My wife had set out a feast— Spray cheese with little butter crackers, deviled eggs, pickles, salami, and a few cloudy glass bottles of the local corn whiskey. Hey, Punch, I said, soft as I could. It was my pet name for her, a reference to our senior prom, where she'd gotten drunk on spiked cranberry cocktail and picked a fight with Pamela Jeffries over who would give the graduation speech. She turned, slow and jerky like the second hand of a clock. I brought you something. I raised the knife, turning it to let the light play off the jewel set into the handle and crossbar. I'd snatched it from a ziggurat we'd stormed just south of Innsmouth. It had been rough, seeing what the Deep Ones had done to those women. It made me grateful Hatcher spent all his time in Carcosa. Am I dreaming? she asked. I shook my head. Are you? I didn't have an answer for that so I just reversed the knife and held it out to her. She took it, her expression unreadable. I stepped forward, arms wide, but stopped as the blade pricked my chest. Sorry, it's very nice. She regarded the knife for a moment, then turned to slip it into a drawer before hugging me back. I breathed in the fruity, slightly spicy smell of her hair, then turned my head for a kiss. Shelley drew back, gripping my arms as if I might drift away. I glanced at the food, embarrassed by the focused intensity in her eyes. It looks delicious. How'd you know I was coming? She gave a little flick of her head. I... Uncle Brian! Ronnie came pelting into the kitchen, then skidded to a halt as I turned. When I'd left New Brighton, 
he'd been little more than a bundle of blankets, red-faced and hungry. Somehow, the years had transformed him from a shifting, squalling animal into something approaching human. That, more than anything, hammered home how long I'd been away. Ronnie edged around me to hide behind Shelley. It's your daddy. She tried to push him towards me, but he clung to her leg, making nervous panting noises that prickled the hair on my arms. Who's Uncle Brian? I tried for a casual tone, but the question came up menacing. It was every soldier's nightmare. Well, one of them. Coming home to find your spouse or lover with someone else. Brian Klosowski, Shelley said with a wry tilt of her head. And it's not what you think. How do you know what I think? I knew Brian. He'd been three years ahead of me in school. Graduated just ahead of Armageddon and went off to Ohio State to study German. One of the many majors that became irrelevant when one or another of the old ones had scraped Europe off the face of the earth in a fit of peak. Ryan and Shelley had been on the cheerleading squad, and I'd been pretty sure that they both had a thing for me, which was flattering as hell. He and a couple friends are coming, Shelley said. I, we, we didn't know you were back, but it's good you're here. This involves all of us. What do you mean? Come on, I'll fix you both a plate. She pulled out a chair and sat Ronnie down in it. Daddy missed you. My son fidgeted as I sat down next to him. I fished around my rucksack and laid out a dozen or so figurines. They're soldiers, like Daddy. Carved from bone and inlaid with obsidian and pearl, they were from a chess set I'd found during the siege of Boston. Half the pieces had been missing and the board burnt and bloodstained, but Ronnie didn't need to know that. Have they killed anyone? He picked up a pawn, holding it with both hands, Fingers interlaced, almost like he was praying. They're just toys, Ronnie. Have you killed anyone? Those would look nice in your Lego castle. Shelley set a plate in front of me and handed Ronnie a cracker with some salami. Why don't you go upstairs and see? There was a knock at the door. I was thankful for that. I don't know what I would have done if Brian had just walked in. Uncle Brian! Ronnie went running. He'll warm up to you. Shelley rested a hand on my back. It was all I could do not to cringe at the unexpected touch. Brian scooped Ronnie up, smiling as he slipped a piece of hard candy into my son's hand. Candy. Damn. I should have thought of that. With most of what had been the southern U.S. underwater, sugar was hard to come by. Brian stepped into the kitchen leaning down to give Shelley a quick peck on the cheek with an ease I couldn't help but envy. The other guests who arrived were more furtive, closing blinds and checking windows. I'd known them all a lifetime ago. Deacon Lasco, who I'd shared my first cigarette with, crouched behind the dumpster out back of Pike's. Beth Antonelli, who'd broken her leg when she tried to jump her bike across Raccoon Creek and spent half of the fifth grade in a cast. Rosa and Carlos Martinez from the soccer team, Jackson, Hauser, Lee. I could see them all, like my memory had been filmy glass now wiped clean. Brian turned as I pushed back from the table. Holy shit! He glanced at Ronnie, blushed, then set the boy down. Sorry, Shelley. It's okay. She smiled, taking Ronnie from him. 
He was across the kitchen in two steps, arms wrapped around me. You made it, Long. You fucking made it. Then they were all around, laughing as they pawed at my shoulders and hands. It took a while to fight clear of the press. The next few hours filled up with corn whiskey and reminiscence. Brian told the story of how we'd smuggled a baby goat into Rosa Martinez's piano recital, which meant Rosa had to tell the story how she and Beth lured us into skinny-dipping in Raccoon Creek and stolen our clothes. After Ronnie went to bed, we worked our way through the rest of the whiskey, the familiar rhythms of shared lives obscuring the strange distance the years had set between us. Shelley slipped an arm around my waist. I'd had quite a few drinks by then, so it was nice to hold her close. For a moment, it was like I'd never left. But only for a moment. Is Pam back too? Brian asked after we'd laughed about Shelley and Pamela's drunken prom brawl. No, I swallowed at the thought of the forest, almost able to feel the caress of branches on my face. I mean, not really. Brian's smile slipped. And the others? Just me. Damn. What about Brykowski? It took me a second to realize he was talking about the lieutenant. He's here. Why? I looked around the table at the expressions gone guarded and wary. Can we trust you? Beth Antonelli leaned across the table. Her cheeks had that flushed look she got when she was more than a little drunk. Come on, it's long. Brian slapped me on the shoulder. He's got as much reason to hate the old ones as we do. They watched me. I hate them. And at that moment, I did. It might have been the raw anger in my voice. It might have been that they wanted so badly to believe, or it might have been the three bottles of hard liquor, but my pronouncement seemed to cut the tension in the air. We were going to hit the factory, Shelley said, her voice barely above a whisper. But Brykowski's better. He's an emissary, you see. Brian spread his hands, growing expansive in drunkenness. The king in yellow, writ small, the unspeakable one can't come to our world yet. It still works through avatars. Whatever you're planning, it won't work, I said. You haven't seen... But it already has, Brian said. The Toledo militia grabbed an emissary three months ago. They were able to banish the thing. Hurt has... Don't say its name, I said, fear cutting through the warm buzz of the whiskey. We're not alone, Shelley said. Remnants of the old U.S. Army went north of the border. They've fortified Toronto and are looking to strike back. I frowned. We'd all heard rumors, but that's all they were. If there'd been any resistance left, the king would have turned out the Yellow Guard to grind them to dust. It's true. Brian refilled my glass. I've been talking to them. They can get us out. But we need to prove we can be trusted. You'll be killed, or worse... The room was too hot. I pulled at my collar, the liquor making my head swim. We're already being killed, Shelley said. Death by inches, Brian added. They call it conscription. But taking ten percent of us every five years? Long, they're decimating us. I wiped a sweaty hand across my forehead. Decimating. Trust Brian to whip out a ten-cent word to make his point.
The king made a slave of you, of all of us, Beth said. The Bayaki will be here soon, Brian said. We need your help. I glanced at Shelley for support, but she was watching Brian. They all were. I need time to think. We've got a day, maybe. Brian put his hand on my shoulder. I'm sorry, Long. I really am. But this is the only way to clear of this mess. It felt like a dream. My friends and family would be rebels with no idea what they were up against. I could see there was no stopping them, not that I would have tried. A day, then. It was less than I'd hoped for, but it would have to be enough. There were nods around the table, some hopeful, some skeptical, but no one disagreed. Just like me, just like everyone, they had no choice. Wind stirred the meadow below Parsons Hill, breakers of shadow rippling the tall grass into symbols of imminent doom. I helped Shelley spread a ratty checkered blanket by the crabapple tree where we'd shared our first kiss. Remembering the night made me smile, the smell of her hair, not quite knowing where to put my hands. Necking beneath the tree had been something of a rite of passage for New Brighton teens and its scrubby bark was etched with a tapestry of awkward declarations of love. Strange how long I'd looked forward to coming home, but after one night the walls had already started to crowd around me. I'd tried to go for a walk, but the forest kept whispering. Thankfully, the apple tree was quiet. I set the picnic basket down to search the tangle of scars for where I'd carved an equation of Shelley in my names. Something had lost long claw marks on the trunk, abrading scores of lopsided hearts and ragged forevers, ours included. I unfolded my penknife, intending to rectify the loss, but a soft moan from Ronnie stopped me. He watched the tiny blade, lips twisted into an expression partway between a sneer then a snarl. Give it here, Ronnie's reedy voice belied the intensity of the command. Put that away. Shelley stepped between us, then knelt to press her hands to Ronnie's cheeks. Look at me. Look at me. He gave a little whine, but Shelley held his face, forcing him to meet her eyes. It's okay, honey. Go play while Daddy and I get lunch ready. But... The Splinter Man. Go play. She gave Ronnie a little push. He ran a few steps before glancing back, watching until I folded the knife and slipped it into my pocket. This seemed to break whatever spell held Ronnie, and he took off down the hill with a burst of sing-song nonsense. What was that? I asked. Shelley ran a hand through her hair. He has dreams. Some man tells him to do things. Mostly it's okay but I had to lock the knife drawer in the kitchen and put all the scissors up. Sorry, I forgot to tell you, but it's fine. I reached for her hand. Five years is a lot to unpack. Her fingers were cold and stiff in mine, but she gave a little smile. Down in the field, Ronnie tromped through the grass, scattering flights of crickets and mayflies. Their tiny, terrified screams reminded me of the calls of the hunting horrors, and for a moment... It was all I could do not to scuttle into the gnarled shadow of the apple tree. Shelley gave a low hiss. I realized I'd been crushing her hand and let go, 
Sorry, I... It's okay. She massaged the blood back into her fingers. Five years is a lot to unpack. There was chicken salad in the basket, along with a thermos of fresh sweet tea, oatmeal cookies, and fried bologna sandwiches in little plastic baggies. We laid it all out, then laid ourselves out, sipping tea while the afternoon sun seeped into our bones. I haven't been here for years. Shelley brushed an errant leaf from the blanket. I hope not. I glanced at the tree. I'd hate to have to thrash any of the other boys for getting fresh with my wife. I've only had time for one boy, Shelley snorted, a bit of the girl I remembered peeking through, and he says he's getting too old for kisses. More for me, then. It was a lame line, but when I leaned over, she didn't pull away. The kiss was just like the first time, tentative and awkward, but I still got that little tingle down my neck at the smell of her hair, and I still had no idea where to put my hands. I used to think about this all the time, I said when we came up for air. What? How it would be when I got back? Is it all you hoped? Her question came rimmed with wary caution. Don't know, I said, just before the silence became uncomfortable. It still doesn't feel quite real. She slipped an arm around my shoulder. Well, it is. You're back. And overhead, a flight of Bayaki broke through the clouds. Ungangly outside the void of space, they tumbled through the air in a riot of members' wings. We watched as they circled the hill, gargling and hooting to one another in playful tones. I took another sip of tea, feeling the anxiety drain from me. Ready for lunch? I hate them, Shelley said. What, the Bayaki? I turned, surprised by the anger in her voice. They're the good guys. She stared at me, a strange expression on her face. I mean, they're not the good guys, but they keep the me go and the night haunts away. I can't tell you how many times those ugly bastards saved my life. Shelley stood and cupped her hands around her mouth. Ronnie, get back here. Calm down, it's fine. I reached for her, but she hurried off down the hill, dividing anxious looks between the sky and where Ronnie was just coming out of the grass. The Bayaki wheeled once, then flapped off towards town. See? Nothing to worry about. I jogged up to her. I know back home it's easy to forget about. I haven't forgotten. I can't forget. That's not what I meant. I can't pretend everything is okay. Ronnie, the dreams, those things. You have no idea how hard... No idea? It was my turn to stare. I used to shake when I got angry. But now the fury came cold, coiling tighter and tighter inside my chest until I thought my heart would burst from the pressure. I'm sorry. She wilted under my glare. I flicked a hand at the Bayaki, now no more than a distant blotch on the horizon. A few bad dreams, the occasional flyover. New Brighton has it easy. Let me tell you about Boston. The Deep Ones took the men and women. They've got a use for us. The children, though? We had to go house to house with flamethrowers. Once the damp took hold, it was kinder to burn them. There was this shelter in Hyde Park. Must have been a few thousand kids inside. Luckily, someone thought to seal the doors, or they'd have torn into us like, Stop!
I noticed her hands had curled into fists. Good. She was getting the point. Humans aren't in charge anymore. I forced myself to breathe long and slow. It's their world now. She shook her head. Is this what you want? What I want doesn't figure into it. It's about survival, Shelley. Things are falling apart. We're falling apart. What's the use of surviving if we're not human anymore? I didn't have an answer for that. They took you. She knuckled an eye with a scowl. Crying always made Shelley mad. It was one of the things that I loved about her. I came back. What about when they come for Ronnie? They won't. Yeah, I know. They've got no use for children, right? I rubbed my hands across the stubble on my chin. She was right, but it didn't matter. Ronnie came running up, cheeks flushed with excitement, hands clasped around something. Mom, Dad, look! I knelt to inspect Ronnie's prize, feeling a swell of relief when he didn't shy away. He opened his hands to reveal a beetle with a tiny human face. Shelley made a disgusted noise in the back of her throat. Kill it! Ronnie took a step back. It's okay, honey. I held out my hand. I won't hurt it. Ronnie looked to Shelley, who gave a tight-lipped nod. I took the beetle from him, then let it scuttle off. It glanced back just before disappearing into the brush, and I grimaced, mouth unaccountably dry. We walked back to the apple tree in silence. Can I have a sandwich? Ronnie asked. When we get home, Shelley started packing up the basket. I regarded my wife and son, wondering what it would be like to watch them die. The world was changing. Logic and meaning stretched tight as a drumhead across the warped skeleton of reality. We'd already fought and lost, spectacularly. The old ones did as they pleased while we crouched in the margins, telling ourselves it wasn't too late. It's surprising what people will believe when they've got no choice. I'll do it. I said. I'm almost finished. Shelley didn't look up. No, the lieutenant. Tell Brian I'm in. She let out a long, slow breath, eyes closed, then stood to face me. The relief on her face was palpable. For the first time, I noticed the dark smudges under her eyes, the hollowness of her cheeks, the worry lines bunching the corners of her lips, all the things I'd overlooked as a matter of habit. Shelley stepped in, threading her arms through mine. I love you. I looked at Ronnie, laughing as he kicked crab apples down the hill, seemingly unconcerned by Bayaki or human-faced beetles. And why should he be? He'd never known time before the old ones. This was normal for him. I love you too, I said. Both of you. Strangely enough, I was surprised to find I did. The lieutenant stood at the edge of the forest, head tilted, his lips peeled back from teeth the color of wet concrete. I could feel the others behind him, flashes of bloody skin against the muted green, murmurs slipping into cracks between my thoughts. I ignored the calls. They weren't my responsibility anymore. Sergeant Long. He straightened as I approached, dried skin stretching with a sound like overtaxed rope. Come to re-enlist. No, 
I avoided the lieutenant's eyes, knowing I wouldn't be able to go through with it under the hopeless agony of his gaze. Are the Bayaki here? They never left. The plan was for me to lure the lieutenant away from the Bayaki into town where Brian and the others could capture him. There were jeeps waiting, speckled with a riot of primary colors that would confuse the senses of pursuer used to hunting in the featureless expanse of space. Then it was a mad dash to the lake and the dubious safety of Brian's northern contacts. The lieutenant cut my chin in one of his leathery hands. I could smell the mildewed damp of his robes, the iron and blood of his breath, and below that, the strange, almost smoky incense that infused his weathered flesh. He raised my face. Tear tracks glittered on the cracked hardpan of his cheeks, but his eyes brimmed with accusation. I'd thought Brykowski had run from the Bayaki out of fear, but I realized now his cowardice had been a species of bravery, born of a desire to deny the inevitable, to rob the old ones of their due. My resolve almost cracked. Brian, Deacon, Beth, all of them were my friends. How many times have I thought of them in the midst of battle, hissing prayers to a god I knew to be false, promising life, love, anything, if he would just see me home. I imagined Shelley's eyes staring out from the lieutenant's ravaged face, wild with hate and terror. No, I couldn't watch her die. It's surprising what people will do when they have no choice. It was over quickly. Bayaki slipped from the shadows behind Pike's market to collect Brian and his would-be rebels. There was a burst of gunfire, then a single report as Beth Antonelli shot Rosa and Carlos, then turned her pistol on herself. Brave woman. The rest were dragged out of their hiding places, struggling in the Bayaki's rubbery grasp. There were a few hundred all told, more than enough to fill the tithe. New Brighton would be safe for another five years. The lieutenant waved, and most of the Bayaki clawed their way into the sky, cradling their screaming charges with the tender care usually reserved for heirlooms or newborn babies. Two remained. You bastard! Brian gritted out as the Bayaki holding him flopped forward. Up close, I couldn't focus on the creature, my eyes watering as if I were looking at the sun. I met Brian's hateful gaze, surprised that I felt nothing. Did you plan it from the beginning? he asked. No, it wasn't a lie. I hadn't planned anything. There was just no other way. He sagged in the creature's coils. I could have kept talking, could have rationalized my actions by explaining that there was no northern resistance, but that wouldn't have helped either of us. I could see in his eyes that he'd always known. There was no future, no hope, nothing outside the malign indifference of the great old ones. Not for us, at least. Our only choice was to forget the past, to become what we needed to be to survive. My son was proof of that. You promised. I turned to the lieutenant as the Bayaki holding Brian took flight. All yours. He smiled at Shelley, even though his eyes were squeezed shut, then did a crisp about face and made his way back up McNaughton Avenue. 
The Bayaki set her down almost gingerly before skittering after the lieutenant, leaving us alone in the deserted parking lot. Shelley slapped my hand away and spit in my face when I knelt. Her fingernails left ragged marks on my cheeks as she pushed me away. She took a few steps, then turned back and tried to say something. All that came out was a garbled shout. I did it for you and Ronnie, I said, knowing it would fester. I hadn't seen Shelley this furious since prom. She took a step towards me, hands balled into fists. Then, with a disgusted groan, she turned and ran back down the alley. I didn't follow. There was no point. She would come back, there was nowhere to run. In time, we might even be a family again. It's surprising what people can learn to accept, even love when they've got no choice. In the distance, the low hiss of wind through the leaves mingled with the shrieks of the rebels and ecstatic howls of my former comrades. For once, their calls were not for me. I'd had enough war, enough madness, but even if I wanted to return, they wouldn't have accepted me. There was no room for cowards in the Yellow Guard. End. That was Evan Dickens' Of the Fittest, as read by our own Seth Williams. Seth Williams is, of course, a human with a normal human job and being totally human, of course, as a spouse and pets. When not doing completely normal human things, she, he, human gender pronouns are so confusing, can be heard as a regular narrator for far-fetched fables. Z can also be found as both a narrator and associate editor at Tales to Terrify, all communications can be directed to www.theboojum.org. Link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Seth. That will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editor, Scott Silk, and associate editors, Seth Williams and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.